0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 269. It's titled, How the Public Pension Crisis Will Impact You. Last week, I mentioned a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus who's retiring and has the opportunity to purchase into the Nevada State Public Employment Retirement System. She can pay $86,000 and will then receive an additional $550 per month for the rest of her life. We looked at the economics of the transaction. Given her life expectancy of 24.6 years, that income stream, that $550 per month for the next 24.6 years, if she pays $86,000 for that, that equates to a 5.8% internal rate of return. That's a pretty good return. What we then have to evaluate is the default risk. What is the likelihood of the Nevada public retirement system and the state of Nevada defaulting on that obligation? Could her benefits be cut? In today's episode, we're going to take a closer look at that particular public retirement system as well as all public retirement system because there's a crisis going on. Most of the state and county and city retirement systems, defined benefit pension plans, are underfunded. The American Academy of Actuaries point out that pensions are a form of deferred compensation. Participants essentially trade compensation today for future benefits. And just like with this plus member, this particular defined benefit plan would offer her fixed lifetime income, assuming she qualified. In other words, had worked a sufficient number of years to do so. And in this case, she did. And now she has the opportunity to actually purchase additional benefits. But that's how a defined benefit plan works. You work a certain number of years to get vested. And then the longer you work, you get vested in a higher potential retirement amount. And when you retire, then you get this Fixed lifetime income. In looking at the finances of a pension plan, there's really two parts. There's the plan assets, which represent the value of the stocks, bonds, cash, and other assets that the plan owns. What's the market value? The second part is the liability, which represents the value today of all the benefits that will be paid in the future. Valuing the assets is easy. You can look at the market value of the publicly traded assets, such as the stocks or the bonds. For the private or non-public asset, typically there's an appraised value. And you can determine, here's the value of the plant's assets. It's more difficult to estimate the value of the liabilities. Because, again, these liabilities represent future benefits, but translated in today's money. So, there's some uncertainty because it's lifetime income. How long will beneficiaries live? Will life expectancies increase? There's uncertainty regarding the makeup of who will qualify for the pension plan. Will the current workforce stay long enough to get vested? Will the health mix of those that are participating change? And most important, what discount rate? Should the plan use to convert those future benefits into today's money? This is a present value calculation. Most public pension plans use the rate of return they expect to return on the assets to put those liabilities into today's dollars. That's essentially the calculation that we did for this plus member. She had this income stream assuming 25 years, and we used a discount rate of 5.9% to put it into today's dollars and value that income stream at $86,000. The question is, what market rate of return should public pensions use? Currently, and this is a study by Milliman, the median rate of return used by the top 100 public pension plans is 7.25%. That's the median. We'll explore that in a little bit. Pension plan trustees, beneficiaries, and regulators can compare, then, the value of the assets, again, the market value, compared to the liabilities, assuming some rate of return or discount rate. And if they match... The assets equal the liabilities, then the plan is fully funded. If there's a shortfall, then the plan is underfunded and has an unfunded liability. Here's the key though the higher the discount rate or the higher the rate of return assumption, the lower the liabilities. If a pension plan assumes 8% in terms of what it believes it will earn on the assets, and uses that to discount those future liabilities into the present, then those liabilities will be lower than if they use 5 or 6%. The Society of Actuaries writes, Defined benefit plans can be thought of as transferring risk from participants to plan sponsors, at least when viewed in comparison to the alternative of a defined contribution plan. Defined contribution plan is where an employer might match the employees' contributions, but the employees they take on the market risk, the inflation risk, the longevity risk. How long will the individual live in retirement? Whereas for a defined benefit plan, workers that participate in that they don't have to worry about what return the pension plan will earn or what inflation will be, all they have to worry about is default risk. What is the likelihood that if the pension falls short and becomes severely underfunded, that the workers' benefits will be cut? Currently, 17% of private industry workers in the U.S. have access to a defined benefit pension plan. That percentage has been dropping Per decade. So most don't have access to a defined benefit plan. They have a defined contribution plan. But nearly all U.S. public workers who work for states, counties, municipalities, including public school teachers, police and fire workers, there's 14 million of them. Most are covered by a defined benefit pension plan, a public pension plan. And across the board, these public pension plans are underfunded by between $1.5 trillion to $3.8 trillion, depending on the assumptions used. The Pew Charitable Trust estimates it to be about $1.5 trillion. That's using the assumptions that the public pension plans have. Many are aggressive in terms of what they expect their plan assets will return and consequently what they use to estimate the value of the liabilities, which is that future benefits they have to pay put into today's money. The Pew Charitable Trust estimates that the average funding level is 69%. In other words, the asset value as a percent of the liabilities is about 69%. Sarah F. Anzia of the University of California, Berkeley, and Terry M. Moe of Stanford University wrote in a paper titled Polarization and Policy, the Politics of Public Sector Pensions that the problem was chronic and many years in the making, rooted in the widespread departures from sound accounting practices with governments offering their workers increasingly valuable pensions but failing to make the upfront payment to fund them. The other challenge is the amount that needs to be put in or contributed each year is increasing because the expected rates of return are falling. The study by Milliman showed that the median discount rate in 2013 was 7.75%. Now it's 7.25%. But Milliman, they're an investment consultant, so they calculate expected returns. They have capital market assumptions for stocks and bonds, and their expectations, just like the ones that I use on Money for the Restless Plus, have been falling, particularly as interest rates have been declining. And so they calculate that the rate of return that the pension plan should use, on average, should be 6.42% based on the plan's asset allocation. In 2018, the average allocation or the aggregate asset allocation of U.S. public sector pension plans was 48% in stocks, 25% in private equity and real estate, 23% in fixed income, and 4% in cash. They estimate Milliman Again, their rate of return for 2018, the expectation is 6.42%. Compared to 7.25%, they reported discount rate used by the plans or the median. In 2013, Milliman's independently determined expected rate of return was 7.47% versus the 7.75% that the median plan was using. So the gap is much wider now. And if the plans used the 6.42%, the estimated liability would go from $4.93 trillion to $5.3 trillion. So the gap, the the level of underfunding, which is at 69% now, would be even greater. I looked at the list, and you can go to the paper. It'll it'll be in the show notes. So you can see each state, particular plan some of the other police and fire plans. The one that's in the worst shape is Kentucky. And it's the retirement plan for what they classify as non-hazardous employees, which would have a number of different counties, mental health agencies that participate in the plan. As of June 30th, 2018, its funding ratio, the value of its assets compared to the liabilities was only 13%. Now, to its credit, it was using a very conservative discount rate of 5.32%, but only 13% funded. There was a recent pension reform bill passed in Kentucky that tried to shore up the plan, but it required the quasi government agencies that contribute to the plan because you have agencies around the state that are members of this particular. Non hazardous plan, they have to contribute 49% of payroll to the plan to try to boost funding. Now, that was frozen at 49%. If they use the actual numbers that the actuarial studies say they should use, these agencies should be paying 83% of payroll each year into the plan. Kentucky State Senator Jimmy Higdon said, we didn't get into this pension crisis overnight, and we're not going to get out overnight. It's going to take a whole lot of money over a long period of time. Over the years, we've overpromised and underfunded. Now we've set up a schedule over the next 30 years to pay off that unfunded liability. Hopefully, over the next 25 years, we'll see the funding ratio increase. They have a long way to go. The Pew Charitable Trust did a study of these public pension plans. They found out that the states that have very well-funded retirement systems were able to adjust to the recession and keep their funding status high because they made the actuarially determined contributions that they should have. And they had policies in place to manage risk and cost. And they give the example of South Dakota, Tennessee, and Wisconsin which are three states that have very well-funded pension plans, all made 100% of the contributions that were required by actuaries. And then they have policies that lower benefits or increase contributions in response to market downturns. In other words, they're not putting the same amount in each year. They actually put in the amount needed to fund the liability based on the performance of the assets. Whereas Pew found that Kentucky, New Jersey, and Illinois, that have the worst funded retirement systems in the country, didn't consistently put aside the amount that their actuaries said they should to cover the cost of the promised benefits. If you don't contribute enough, then the shortfall gets greater and greater. And because of the underfunding, it increases the pension cost, the amount that needs to be paid going forward. Pew found that pension contributions went up 424% in Illinois, 267% in Kentucky, and more than 100% in New Jersey. This is from 2007 to 2017. Pew found that despite this huge increase in the amount being contributed, that those three states collectively, they fell an additional $11.5 billion short of the amount they needed to keep their pension debt from growing. What's the potential impact of these huge shortfalls in public pension plans? Before we look at that, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Togovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools, whether you're doing a million 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits at netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. NetSuite.com slash David. States can't go bankrupt. They can't just wipe out what they have to pay. And in many cases, they can't cut benefits at all. I didn't realize this. There's a paper by Alicia Monell and Laura Quinby titled Legal Constraints on Changes in State and Local Pensions. They found that most states protect pensions under a contracts based approach. And they referenced the federal constitution's contract clause and similar provisions in state constitutions that prohibit a state from passing any law that impairs existing public or private contracts. There's a three part test the courts apply to figure out if the state action would be unconstitutional under the contract clause. They first determine whether there's a contract that exists, and then whether the state action is substantially impairing the contract. And if there is impairment, then the courts have to decide whether that action is justified in the public interest and if it's reasonable and necessary. And that's a very high hurdle or standard to reduce pension benefits. In addition, a handful of states have state constitutional provisions that expressly prevent the state from reducing benefits that were expected at the time of employment. Illinois and New York have that provision. There's a table in that paper that shows the different states. Now, there's PLUS members concerned about the state of Nevada, and they have a legal basis in Nevada to protect against cutting past and even future benefits. Some states that have been able to adjust future benefits and help them maintain their funding status have legal protections only to protect benefits that have already accrued, that have been earned. But as far as future benefits, they have a formula, and they're contractually allowed to make adjustments, which seems fair based on the performance of the assets. So states, they can't go bankrupt, but cities can. Sarah Anzia and Terry Moe in their paper wrote, Detroit has gone bankrupt, as have Stockton, San Bernardino, Vallejo, and Central Falls, with pensions playing a key role. More cities are likely to follow. Others are devoting a much larger share of their budgets to pension costs, crowding out other services. Under current law, states cannot go bankrupt, but ballooning pension costs are staking ever-larger claims to their revenues, Squeezing Services and Imposing Austerity. Now, you might not participate in a public sector pension plan. I certainly don't. But it impacts us because the underfunding and the lower expected returns result in potentially higher taxes that need to be paid to shore up these pension plans and cuts in services. Detroit filed bankruptcy in July 2013 had an estimated $18 billion in debt. 40%, $7.4 billion, was unfunded pension and retiree health care cost. They went bankrupt. And then they reorganized. As part of that reorganization, it was court-approved. 32,000 active and retired city workers had their pension cut. General workers got a 4.5% base cut and the pensions of police and firefighters, their pensions were cut 2.25%. Both of them, the cost of living increase was eliminated. Whereas before, their benefits would be adjusted by the rate of inflation. That was no longer. That was the plan, but it would have been much deeper cuts, except there was $816 million contributed to the pension plans, some of which from private foundations and other private donors, as well as state taxpayers. So they contributed more, but they they got private donations to help fund this pension plan so that the cuts weren't even greater. At the same time, the city doesn't have to contribute. They sort of got a, a reprieve from contributing until they could get their finances in better order until 2024. Sir so Ansia was looking at how states and cities cope with the level of underfunding and how they're having to contribute more and more. Just focusing on local government, she found that per employee in 2007, local governments were contributing $4,900 per employee, about 3.1% of general revenue. But by 2016, that amount had increased by $1,216 per employee and was around 3.7% of revenue. And again much of this is due to underfunding in the past not putting in the amount that needs to be put in in addition to the liability is increasing and the gap the level of underfunding is increasing because the discount rate used to calculate liabilities that's being reduced as market expectations for returns falls and that's ballooning the liability. She points out that most Governments aren't increasing revenue, in other words, raising taxes, as their pension costs increase. Instead, they're cutting local government staffing. She writes On average, cities where pension costs doubled over that decade responded by cutting full time equivalent employment per capita by 6.4%. I had another plus member that lives in New York write me because he, I believe, has about 20% of his investment portfolio invested in municipal bonds, mostly Vanguard funds. He was concerned about this underfunding status on municipal bonds. He listened to a podcast about that and wondered, would it start to impact yields? In other words, the default risk on munis would go up, potentially impacting yields and even potentially impacting investors because of default. I don't think the crisis is quite that bad. Certainly in the case of states, I think state municipal bonds will be fine because states can't go bankrupt. They will find the money and in most cases can't cut the benefits. It becomes more of an issue for cities and counties. I think if you're buying individual bonds, you have to be very careful. But if you're buying a a broad base, very, very diversified municipal bond fund, at least for now, I think they're fine. The other consideration is when you're moving, consider the state finances where you're going. We have a place that we bought in Arizona. I didn't look at their state retirement plan to see how underfunded it is or what rate of return they're assuming. They're assuming in Arizona a relatively high rate of return of 8% and it's 70% funded, which means that if they lower the expected return, the percent funded will be even lower. Idaho where i live is much better it's 91% funded the discount rate 7.1% this plus member that's considering paying $86,000 to increase her benefit in the Nevada state retirement plan that plan is 74.4% funded the expected rate of return is 7.5% if i was in that situation and had the opportunity to buy into that plan I would probably do so. I think that the likelihood of those benefits being cut because both existing and future benefits are contractually protected, I think the odds of a, a cut in benefits there are very, very low. Others, though, have speculated that at some of these states that are, are very, very underfunded, potentially there, there will be some type of federal bailout, and we just won't know. I, that's many years in the coming. This underfunding status is not something that just showed up. And so they're able to kind of kick the can down the road and come up with plans. In Kentucky, that senator mentioned a 30-year plan to reduce the underfunding and ultimately make those benefit payments. So this this is a long-time problem, both in the coming and in the fixing. More of a risk for municipalities. Certainly the impact on us is potential reduced benefits and services and eventually higher taxes. And lower and lower interest rates, if we get to negative rates, it will make the problem significantly worse. Most of these studies that we looked at were through June 30th, 2018, when interest rates were much higher. So if they fall even more, then that will have an impact. In concluding, what about private pension plans? Where do they stand? Can that impact taxpayers? Well, in the U.S., the private pension plans are insured by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. This is a federally chartered corporation that acts as an insurance pool. They do an annual report, and there is some distress there. They have two programs. They have a multi-employer plan. So if companies that have pension plans merge, they're now considered a multi-employer plan. That's one side, and then they have single-employer plans. So they're two different insurance funds. The multi-employer plan is in severe distress. The annual report showed that 125 of the 1,400 multi-employer plans are in critical and declining status and declare that they would be unable to raise contributions significantly to avoid insolvency over the next 20 years. In other words, the plans would go bankrupt, and then they would depend on this Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. And when that happens, when there is a plan termination due to distress, that can lead to benefit cuts. That annual report showed, then, because so many of these multi-employer plans are in distress, that the insurance fund itself would effectively be insolvent by 2026. They said that insolvency is a near certainty, unless Congress allocates more money to them. The single employer plan is in much better shape. They see that the plan remaining... What they say net positive over the next decade. So things are improving, but they also point out that risk include high levels of underfunding in plans that could reasonably present a claim. Underfunding in these plans is an order of magnitude larger than observed in the last period when the program was not in deficit. This means that the system is vulnerable to any unexpected downturn in the economy. If we have a recession, stock market returns fall or interest rates fall even further and don't end up climbing, there will be even more distress in the private pension plan system. Something we're going to have to monitor. If you participate in a defined benefit pension plan, get involved. Look at the status. Understand how the liabilities are being calculated. How's the money invested? This is your retirement. It's easy sometimes to just sort of assume everything will be taken care of. But the biggest risk with having your retirement tied to a defined benefit pension plan is the default risk. So you have to worry about default risk and look at what's being done. I know of listeners to the show that are on their pension committee, be it through their union or some other opportunity. So they've gotten involved, and I think that's important to do if you can. So you've got to manage the default risk. If you're in a defined contribution plan, then... We're managing the market risk, the inflation risk, and the longevity risk, and we talk about how to do that on the podcast, including last week's episode on how to better manage risk. That's episode 269. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. The links that I use, the articles that I reference, they're all there. And while you're there, you can sign up for my free weekly Insider's Guide. I'll email those show notes to you each week right after the episode is released, along with an essay I do on money, investing, and the economy. Some of the best writing I do each week just goes to that email list. You can sign up at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I'm not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.